Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? Good to see you too. I am. Ugh, I'm not not great. Me neither. Not great. But I, I'm like faking until I make it. But yeah, I'm not okay. Maybe, you can just start out there. Yeah, I didn't sleep. I had conflict in my house yesterday. Mm-hmm. I'm fighting with the freaking IRS again. Uh huh. And um, like that is my- that's enough right there. Like that could be. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like. like- my kid got sick in the night, horribly sick. Um, you know, it's just like right. Ugh. It's Ugh. the shit, the shit of life. You know, the the shit of life. Yeah, what's it for you? Well, before I go on, I just want to say there was a there was a, a friend that said that she had this visceral reaction to whenever she felt bad, she traced it back to this time at camp where she was in the cold. This is what your, your talk, your check-in reminds me of. Um, she was in her, her cold um, outhouse. This is so gross, but she said, and there's a visceral re- or like a bath, the camp bathroom. It's not an outhouse, but basically the visceral reaction of a cold, wet floor, seeing hair on the floor, smelling. Oh, poop, yeah. And wait, that's wet. what comes up for her when she's like, that's having the a feeling day. like when she has distress, she remembers this visceral thing of cold, wet floor, disgusting cold, wet floor, seeing, um, d- smelling poop and seeing wet hair on the floor. That's what reminds me. Like they all go together for her. Yes. She's really in that. And when she's in that moment, I'm not friends with her anymore, but I remember her telling me this and thinking, oh my God, it's so apt. It's like, that is the thing. It's like this combination of things that come together that just make fucking Ter- like not good you know not good and that i i can really envision that floor by the way <laughs> i really i feel like i know ex- i feel like that was i never went to camp but i feel like I it's know just exactly not what that good floor is like. it's not yeah. good it's not good it's not good and um you know like i guess misery loves company because you know i uh, a bunch of people that i talked to yesterday were like yeah it's not good no <laughs> so yeah i have a similar out. i have a similar vibe of like what is it? You know, I'm, I feel, um, I I mean, it's very strong to say purposeless, (laughs) but I mean, that's, I'm looking for, and I started therapy with this new therapist who I at first thought, oh my God, because she's, she's a, an older lady. And like, she did that thing of like on zoom, we, we meet on zoom and she did a thing where her camera was fucked up. So I only saw half her face and I had to be like, Hey Pat, you got to move the camera. Like I thought, Oh, we're in for a real, but she's Dr. Pat. Dr. Pat is, um, I won't say her last name on this in case I ever talk shit about her, but anyway, she, she, her, she, um, she's turning out to be quite okay. And eight, and it's through my insurance covers it. So it's not. That's and, great. But you know, my bar is pretty low because my last therapist was an Orthodox Jewish guy who kept wanting me to have children. So she's better than that. But um, um, anyway, in therapy, I'm realizing that like, I'm really searching for what is it? Like, what is it I'm looking for in life? Not 
how do I make money? Not how do I get where I want to go, but like, what are the qualities in life that I am searching for? I've never asked myself that question in my life. Wow. Okay. That's big. Yeah. Like, and, and there's all this shit going on. You know, my friend here, her mom's got Alzheimer's. I'm caring, helping care for her and her dad's on life support and it's a mess, but all that stuff is true and it's horrific, but I think that's all the stuff of life that's really shitty, but like the internal, when we've talked about this on the podcast, like my internal stuff is more painful usually than the external, right? I mean, they, they, they really inform each other, but like the inform internal questions of what, what are the things, what am I looking for? Like if the, what is the hustle for? What is the, where am I going? What the fuck? Like that's, that's where I'm at. And it's super painful to know, to realize that like, you know, I don't know the answer to that question. What am I looking for? I, I, I literally don't. And my friend, I have a new friend who's also named Jennifer, who said, um, she asked me this question and she said, Hey, Jay Boz, she calls me Jay Boz. <laughs> when, because someone asked her this as a writing exercise, and I'm going to ask our people this on, on Friday. Anyway, when did you feel, when and where do you feel most at home? Hmm. And I'm like, oh, f- uh, I w- my first response was the co-working space. She's like, no, 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 no. And, but it's because I feel like I belong here. Like there's a place to belong to. So that question got me on this. It got me really feeling like vulnerable and, But like, I wanted to ask you that question. Like my answer was, holy shit, I have no idea. And then the true, if I told this to, and I told this to therapy last night, the true answer to that is in practical terms, the first time I remember feeling at home was when I went to my partial hospitalization day program. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. In 2006. Mm-hmm. And it was the feeling of, after my dad died, you know, I was such a mess and uh, had good insurance, praise God. And I went there and I was ashamed and embarrassed and I didn't want to be there, but I had no structure in my life because I'd left LA and had nothing, nothing to do. And I went there and I thought it was the first time in my life being that I felt like no one was pretending. Mm. not one person was pretending. We had all reached the end of the line in the pretending. The therapist, like no one was pretending that we weren't where we were. It was unbelievably like uh, shocking, but it was also the biggest relief I've ever felt in my life. Well, that's, that's the word I was going to say. I was going to say what it sounds like what you really felt was relief that you were, I mean, because, and it makes sense that you would have spent your entire life up to that point, figuring out what you had to do to survive, which usually involved making other people happy and feeling responsible for other people's happiness. So the minute, you know, nobody was pretending to be happy. And even if they were, you weren't in charge of whether or not they were happy, um, that that would feel like a relief. And I, I mean, I haven't had that exact experience, but I do know that, and this is something about myself that I'd really like to change. 
that because of my the ways I've learned to cope, I mostly feel at home when I'm by myself, ah. which is not it's not really the direction I, I want. It's not the thing I want to be like fostering. I want to be fostering a feeling of being at home with the people that I love instead of feeling afraid that the people I love, you know, can't help me, can't yes. take care of me. I yeah. have to take care of them. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I think it is. I think it's, it's, it's right. It's two sides of the same coin. It's like wanting to be for me. Yeah. Wanting to also for my parents and my people I loved in the past to take care of me and feel that sense of relief with them, but feeling the opposite and then finding a, Finally being like, there is, and I feel like that people talk about this a lot in 12-step programs where it's like, I was, it's like we're out of options. So like completely. So I, I don't like saying hit rock bottom all the time because it, it was like the end, I will say the end of the road and Pema, uh, Pema Children, you know, the Buddhist monk lady talks about this too, like nowhere else to go. Like you're up against your shit and there's literally nowhere else to run. And so that is like the worst moment. But then I think for me, the moment of admitting and, and saying, oh my God, I have nowhere else to go. I guess I'll surrender to this for me at that moment in 2006, in May of 2006 or June, it was a day program at a hospital, but like we can be anything that you just surrender and are like, I, I, I need help. Like I cannot... And I don't care where the help comes from necessarily. I'm not picky about it. I happen to have good insurance. Um, so I went to a nice place, but it didn't have to necessarily be nice. I was looking for the relief of the, 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 uh, the, the release of judgment in, in a group setting. So it could have been anywhere, but it happened to be a, a great hospital at the time. And um, so when it was so helpful that she asked me that question, because I was like, Oh, I definitely didn't feel at home in my family, right? So I didn't feel that. And I didn't feel, and I was thinking about the theater school in our podcast. There were moments where I felt at home within, I feel like for the theater school, and I don't know how you feel about this, was sort of like a process of, um, for me, feeling like stepping my toe in and feeling at home and then feeling, no, not at home. And then, so I didn't feel at home. Like some people talk about like the drama club in their high school being a refuge and feeling at home. I never felt at home there. So, I mean, that was just a really, so it's a lot of intense stuff happening. I feel like for me and for the people that I love and know, and for me, it was really highlighted with this question. Like, when do you feel at home? Yeah. And I was like, right. Right. Yeah. No, that's a very good question. Um, what about you? Like alone, like when you think of that, you think of being by yourself. Yeah. I mean, I have, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying it's my fault, but I have perpetuated, let's say the dynamic wherein I feel alone and nobody can help me because whatever, I'm not letting them help me or I pick people who can't help me or whatever it is. And so I, I, I'm constantly like reaffirming for myself. See, nobody cares about you. You know, you don't have any play, like all you can rely on is yourself. That's the really terrible message that I find myself working really hard to defend and to reaffirm. And I really don't want to do that. And I'm not suggesting that like, 
I, I, it maybe I need a big paradigm shift, but maybe it's really just this internal work of being like, maybe you just let go now. How about serenity right now? How about finding some little bit of peace right now instead of thinking when I get blank or when I do blank or when I am blank, it's that's never, it. Not, they never comes. I mean, this is the thing that really characterized, I felt like my sister's life. She was, was always, and for her, it was always about money. Once I get my little, you know, this amount of money together, then I will, and it was some form of like, then I'll be happy. Once I get this job, then I'll be happy. Once I get this boyfriend, then I'll be happy. Once I get, you know, and you could just do that for literally your whole life and never get there. And I feel like maybe I've been saying to myself some type of thing like that I feel superior in some way because I have this understanding, but really I'm doing the same thing. I'm, I'm in, internally saying, well, when I find success as a writer or when whatever my kids are older or what, and that's just, it just doesn't work like that because when those things happen, there will just be other problems. It's right. Not like there's no utopia. There's no like, right. there's no, okay. So like mile miles and I always say like the panacea isn't even a panacea. Like we thought, you know, him getting a full time. It's just so amazing how it works. Like him getting a full-time job with all these bells and whistles and all things was going to be the panacea. Well, then it turns out that the, you know, like the paycheck's way smaller because the full-time job you put into a 401k, you put into da-da-da-da-da, you put, it's not the panacea that you, that it, it's just, there is no panacea. Like, and I think that, that, that's what, you know, what the great teachers and stuff that I like say is like, there is nowhere to run. Like, stop looking for the place that you can run to. There is nowhere to run. You're here. And I'm like, oh my. God. And, and I think there was a freedom in that, but with it be for me before the freedom, just like before I stepped into the rooms, stepped into the room of my day program, there was a constant fighting of trying to survive and trying to keep going the way I had been going, which was pretending to be fine and pretending to keep it all together and pretending to be whatever, you know, what my mom and my sister needed me to be when my dad was dying. And, and, and I, for better, or for worse, like I, I, I literally something cracked and I literally was like, Oh, like I talked to the, I remember talking to the intake person and being, and, and even them just asking me, like, what's going on, you know? And I just lost it. And they were like, okay, we'll see you at 1, 8, 1 p.m. We'll see you in yeah, a couple hours. Right, right, yeah. You know? For me, though, for me, I really haven't figured out the difference between pretending and, like, uh, a more healthy acting as if, like, okay, it's not great, but I'm going to kind of go along as if it were. I I really don't have a very good distinction in my mind between when I'm um, intentionally employing faking it till I make it versus I'm just pretending. I'm telling everybody that I'm fine when I'm really not. Like, I, I haven't figured that out for myself. I haven't figured out uh, maybe I haven't like, 
I don't. Know. Maybe I just haven't let myself get there. I don't know. What well, I also don't think. I think again, like I was thinking about like the process of feeling at home, and again, I think it's an it's an it's a uh, fucking process of yes anding. Like sometimes I'm pretending, and sometimes I'm doing faking it till I make it, which is healthy. And sometimes it's just I don't think for me it's like. I got uh, part of growing up, obviously in a, in a, you know, alcoholic home is like the black and white thinking. Right. So it's like all or nothing. Like I have to be a total mess all the time and that's fine. And that's embraceable. Or I have to be like stoic and I can, and I think some days for me is like, I'm able to really embrace the fake it till you make it in a healthy way. And I'm like, Oh, Hey, I'm going to do the things, walk the dog, do, 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 do. And some days are just like, Oh my God, I can't, but it's, yeah, it's figuring out which days are which. And also, especially, you know, there's shit to be done. Like if you, especially, seriously, and I, I mean, I don't mean to, you know, say this as like, but, but especially as parents, like there is shit to be done. I'm a dog owner. There's shit to be done. So can imagine parents, if, if we, parents are completely responsible for the well-being of their children. And we know my parents didn't do a great job. They did the best they could. It wasn't good enough. I, so, like, there is a real thing about, like, people depend on us to do shit. And so there is this. Older- well, and you, you may not have kids, but you have that with, I mean, a lot of people rely on you. Right. At various times for various right. reasons. So it really is the same thing. It's like, um, you can call me a people pleaser. There's also a thing of like, you can, people, I can call myself or other people can call me a codependent people pleaser, but the lady in the diaper still needs to go to the bathroom. So like, am I going to let her, do you, you know what I mean? Like there's work to be done. Now I can't always do the work, but I think there's a part of me and this is in my DNA. That's like, if a person is suffering and I can help not kill myself, but if I can help, then I do feel like it's my duty to help the lady go to the bathroom like that. I I just, and so, you know, and there's people that are like, Oh, you you know, there's, we love to tell people, especially women, you're doing too much. You need to do self-care. You need to think about yourself. And I'm like, fuck you. You know what? I I often can find that pretty um, like demeaning and also like angering, obviously, you know, anger comes up when people are like this, and it's like the toxic positivity, but it goes beyond that. It's like toxic um, shaming for what we should be doing to take care of ourselves. Yeah, right. It's just the same thing as, you know, as what it's purporting to be fighting against. Yeah, there's a lot of fine lines. I feel, I, you know, I think like the pendulum has really swung in terms of just having this conversation about self-care. So, you know, I, I, I think it really does have to go that way before it can kind of shake out in the middle. But we are in this thing. I mean, for a while, it was just probably so um, gratifying and and such a relief for people to be able to go online and see these positive messages and have these ideas introduced to them about taking care of yourself and having boundaries. But a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. And you know, you can't go around calling everybody a malignant narcissist and you can't go around saying that every time you want to do something you want, it's self-care. It's, you know, there's a lot of distinctions to be made here. And, you know, and I'm uh, there, and there's a lot of distinctions for me to, 
that's the phase of life I think I'm in right now. I'm trying to make some distinctions between, okay, so I'm no, I'm not just doing the whole reacting to everybody thing, yeah, which has defined my life up until very, you know, rather recently. Yeah. Um, but the answer is not to just to go in the direction of whatever the opposite of that is. The, right. The, the answer is to find the, the middle ground and people who are black and white thinkers like me struggle to find the middle ground. Yeah. Hey, let me run this by you. I had recently a conversation with somebody where I was complaining that um, this person who uh, I pay, not a therapist, but um you know, I pay to do something for me that I can't do for myself. Uh Um, You know, I was saying to this other person, like that, this guy is not advocating for me. And the person I was talking to said, nobody advocates for anybody. There are no advocates. And I was like, Hmm, what? Is that true? I, maybe, uh, I mean, I, I really like, it kind of stumped me a little bit. Like, Okay, there's no advocates. What does that mean? Is that, yeah, did they that... say more or no? You just, just left it at that. Just like everything is up, you know, I mean, I guess their point was like everything is up to you, which is, you know, actually something I'm actively trying not to buy into. I'm trying to buy into the idea that I am not in control of everything. Right. Um. So was this person, um, well, I won't ask who this person is, but I will say, uh, that sounds like a lawyer. Well, it sounds like a really dejected person. Yeah. So like a bitter person. Lawyers talk like that a lot. Cause I know, cause I'm married to one and, uh, he doesn't go that route, which is why he was probably not a great lawyer. Uh, but in some ways, you know, but hearing him talk about lawyers, that's a very sort of lawyerly thing to do, which is there is no one on your side, really. There is just you and your willingness to make your life work, make your shit work and to speak up for yourself. And no one really knows yourself like you. So it's up to you. But it, for me, it really is a dangerous stance because mm-hmm. it also, it also sort of makes me angry in that when I was a worked in social services, I was a huge advocate and sometimes people's only advocate. Now, did I do it perfectly? No. And like, did I actually make a difference? You could argue that in court either way, but like I was their advocate and I think there are advocates, but I think there is something, there is some truth in the fact that like we have, we, we have to take care of our, yeah, we, we have, yeah, to we have to take care of ourselves. Well, that's for sure. But that's for sure. But, but I actually, think there are advocates. Look, there are fucking advocates. If you look at like, yeah, there are advocates. Well, that's the reason I wanted to run it by you because I think of you as an advocate. I yeah. think I've seen you advocate for people professionally yeah. and personally yeah. and in your career as a therapist and in your career as a friend and in yeah. your career as a, a writer. Helper. Like, yeah. 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 So, I'm an advocate. I mean, and I think that I take great pride in that and it can lead to like, we're talking about like a lot, a lack of, I wouldn't even say self-care, but I can get run down and tired as shit and exhausted. Um, but I was just saying, as I was walking into the co-working space and I was talking to an unhoused 
guy and helping him out with something and giving him a code and blah, 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 because I had the shit in my trunk. It wasn't like, you know, so I'm giving this stuff to, and I thought, oh, right. If, if being, I did say if being a helper makes me a people pleaser, then I think I'm just going to have to own that because I, 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 I cannot stand idly by and watch as people suffer without, without trying, because I feel like then there's no, oh, and it comes down to this. Like when I was in the, my worst place, people helped me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just, that's the truth. Yeah. And also let's be clear. I mean, being a people pleaser is only a problem when you know, a person is like subverting their, all of their own wants and right. needs in any given situation for the, that's not, that's not right. any kind of helping is not necessarily, you know, pathological. Right. <laughs> and I think I, it's really good. You said that because like in LA, there is this whole thing about like your, your people, like you go, you know, whatever, look out for number one kind of a situation and like, you don't have to be rescue anybody and everyone's, and I'm like, that's fine. But, and also what are you going to do when seriously an unhoused encampment creeps up on your lawn then? So like all this, we, we all do things for ourselves has helped us to get into this mess. So when there's an unhoused person living on your front lawn, tell me what, what, what do you suggest? Like, cause what we've been doing every man and woman for themselves isn't quite working out for us. So like, I mean, I mean, not at all. And there is a part of me, and this is a larger conversation that, that we could have at another time, but like that does think that Hollywood, like the service component being of service is so lacking in this industry. There is no, at least in social services, like there is a service component it may not go perfectly, but there is really no wing of Hollywood that is a service component or a helping component. Right. Or if it is, it's, it's tied up in a lot of like people's vanity, yeah, charity it's, stuff. So, it's interesting to me. So, I mean, you know, I, but yeah, I, I think that advocate that we, and I see you as an, I, I do, I see most parents that I respect and love also are advocates for their little people mm-hmm. all yeah. the time, 24 yeah. seven with systems, with other people, with their families. It's like, so I think without advocates, we're fucked. Absolutely. And, and, you know, like maybe the answer when, when you, when anybody is looking at any situation and saying there's no this, or there's only this and this all and all all or nothing black and white, that's really that's diagnostic. Like. Right. Right. I think anytime you're on a date, you meet a new friend, you're interviewing for a job. If the person you're talking with is living in a black and white world where you, there is evil and good and da da da, you're, you're, I'm in real trouble. Like, I don't think I can work with those people because even if they're fancy and pretty and cute and want to, you know, I, mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to work out just because then I'm going to fall into the camp of either I'm good or evil. And that's going to switch. Right. Yes. Because you can never just be one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Stop trying to make everybody, stop trying to make everybody else one thing or another. We can't do it. It's our brains that are trying to like put things into boxes, but it, right. Right. It really gets us into, into me anyway, into a shit ton of trouble with my marriage, with everything when I'm like, Oh yeah, the dog can never go to the bathroom in the house again. Okay. Well, right. (laughs) Like, 
good luck with that. Like it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So good luck to you on your journey with your perfectionist. Yeah. I mean, yeah. If it would have worked, we would have really cornered the market on, you know, I always think that too. Like, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Like if, if really, um, right. If really just trying to do what other people wanted me to do and to, and to really have no voice worked, I would have been the best version mm -hmm. of myself 20 years ago. Today on the podcast, we are talking to Kristen Goodman. Kristen trained as an actor, but she is also a director, a playwright, even has a history as a uh, comedy writer. She's a horse aficionado and lives in New Mexico with her husband, who is also an actor. And we had a really interesting conversation about gender in theater training, and she has some really interesting thoughts. So please enjoy our conversation with Kristen Goodman. Congratulations, you survived theater school. You survived as an MFA. You did you study also theater in undergrad? I did. I didn't start out in theater. I started out in biology. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah. So you made a real left turn. Yeah, I was trying to what? be my father, basically. So sad. Oh. Um, Your dad's a scientist. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it wasn't for you. No, I failed constant. I was just, I failed biology twice. So I was like, hmm, <laughs> maybe this is as, a, as a biology major, you fail. Yeah. Well, I realized I wanted to play a biologist on TV. Yes. Or, much more fun than actually being a biologist. Or that was really where I was going to get to be a biologist. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, but may, you must have done theater or something like that in school to give you the idea that that was what you could switch into? Honestly, when I was in high school, I took drama because my friends were in it and they said it was an easy grade. And so I did that. I was not good. I, there was no training in my school. Like it was like you, you knew what theater was. I didn't. So like, I remember doing scene studies and I was like, oh, I have to learn my lines. Oh, so sorry. Right. right. <laughs> so I didn't have a clue. Um, but my um, best friend at the time was working at a comedy club downtown in Austin. And so I started writing material with her. And so we would spend our weekends downtown on sixth street at this comedy club, writing material and hanging out with like grown ass adults and um, doing that. So that's, that's what I started to learn. Cool. Yeah. That's how I learned to write comedy. And then um my government teacher, it was during the Bush Dukakis run when they were running against each other. And he, uh, he gave us some ideas. He was sort of a really great mentor. And um, so she and I did a Bush Dukakis debate in class where we impersonated them. And uh, so we just started writing comic material and doing that. Wait, which one were you? Which one were you? I was Bush. Thank yeah. That's, I wish we could video, man. Man, I do too. I did too. And then later, like that summer, he was teaching summer school and uh, he said, can you guys do this debate for my summer school class? We were like, sure. Why not? Figured we go into a classroom. It was like an assembly. <laughs> yes. 
of like all the kids who hadn't passed certain that and they were laughing their butts off so it was sort of I was like oh this feels good I like this and then I went to a women's college where it was liberal art school and I was still studying biology but uh, my second year there I took a theater film class and that was what made me go oh oh I was taking photography. I was doing arts, you know, I was drawing, I was doing that kind of side. But then when I transferred to university of New Mexico, I was going to go to photography program. And, uh, I walked into the theater, uh, section and I just started wandering the halls and I wound up in the Dean's office and she had, she's smoking Capri cigarettes. She's like, come here, sit down. What do you want to do? And I was like, I think I want to be a playwright. And she was like, all right, let's sign you up. So she signed me up and I transferred into there and I had, um, Mac Wellman was one of my instructors and, uh, Isaac Chacron from the Venezuelan oh, yeah. part house. Uh-huh. And, um, Digby Wolf who Holy wrote for laughing. Yeah. So, um, but ultimately I changed my degree to acting because I'm a horror for attention and people kept telling me I was a really good actor and I was like, really? And they were like, yeah, you should be an actor. And so I just went into acting instead. It took me a while. Okay. That's, that's not typical that you would, that a person, I mean, in terms of people that we've interviewed, starting as a writer, going to be an actor and now returning to writing yeah. <clears throat> among other things. So you didn't ultimately find acting that fulfilling or? Acting was, uh, I loved rehearsal. I loved figuring out the characters and, and playing. Once it got to performance, it was, uh, it just, I didn't, I'd never understood the crossover. I never, I didn't, nobody ever talked to me about, well, you can keep playing. Um, it was right. about the product that everybody kind of pushed and I felt too much pressure and it just too much anxiety. And I was kind of miserable every time. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very miserable. Something that crossed my mind when you were talking about writing in Austin, mm -hmm. um, like you—that's the makings of a Saturday Night Live writer. Like that, a lot of. Did you ever think about like doing that? Because I'm like, fuck. If you were writing as a, you were a teenager, right? Yeah, writing 16. that shit. Um, did you ever? Like, I want to write for because that's what I was like. She should write for Saturday fucking Live. Yeah, I didn't. It I never occurred to me. I didn't, uh, I was very, I was just, I was so confident in everything that I did that I never could discern what was what I really wanted to do. Oh. And I, my parents were pretty absent. So, you know, going into theater, I also had, um, when I got, uh, after my second year at this women's college, I went back to Austin for the summer. And I, Reno, there's a comedian performance artist from New York named Karen Reno. And mm. she was workshopping a one woman show called Reno in rehab, something like that, or out of rehab or something like that. And Evan Yanoulis was the director. She had come out of New York also, and she needed an assistant. So I got that gig working for her. And uh, her producer was Chula Reynolds, who was Ann Richards' campaign manager. Oh, yeah. And so I was hanging out with them all summer and working. And uh, at the end of that run or end of that workshop, uh, Chula and Evan uh, and Karen took me to lunch and said, 
you need to decide what you're doing because you're interested in politics, you're interested in entertainment. What do you want to be behind the camera, in front of the camera? And they were just like, you need to focus, get your shit together. So these very powerful, strong women basically were like smacking me upside the head saying, you don't know what you're doing, but you need to do your, you, you have an idea. So like, let's help her. So that was kind of the catalyst to me going. I think that's what clicked when I walked into that Dean's office was right. This is what I want to do. I don't want to be a photographer. I don't want to be a biologist, all these, you know, why do you think it was, you, you said because I was so confident in so many things that I had a hard time figuring it out, but is that really what it, what, I mean, looking at your, with, with your adult eyes now, is it that you were just good at a lot of things? And so, or was it, did it have something to do more with figuring out what other people wanted you to do? Yeah, probably. Absolutely. I, I thought it was confidence. So it was more about being confident that I could fulfill that for other people. And for myself, instead of uh, really hearing my own voice and hearing like what made me excited to wake up and work and do, regardless of the outcome. Did you, did you, uh, when you had that sort of talk with those women, how old were you? I was 19. Holy shit. And did you keep in touch with them? I did with Karen Reno for quite some time. Um... And I just reconnected with Evan briefly on like LinkedIn, but Mm -hmm. not much after that. You know, when you're that young, you're just sort of like flying through the atmosphere, trying to grab onto anything that like feels good. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I'm just so like in awe of the fact that they sat you down and believed enough in you, or I don't know what their motivation was, but it sounds to me like they, fucking gave a you know they gave a shit to sit down with you at 19 I wish some so also you were like assisting at 19 on a professional I mean that is did you have to be like uber responsible as a kid or how did 19 I was like dating skateboarders (laughs) drinking how did you end up being so such like a go-getter kind of a gal well it was my dad he's German and he learned how to parent in the boot camp in the Navy. And then, um, mm. you know, we always say no more. <laughs> I always had horses. And so I was always, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't watching Saturday morning cartoons, you know, I was outside and I was working and there were chores and it was so responsibility was something that I kind of mm. was innately built into my, whether I liked it or not. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned horses and that's been a big part of your life, including you trained animals for film or. So when we moved to, was a ring. Yeah. When we moved to Los Angeles. Um, I still had my salary from the Chicago college performing arts where I was an associate acting professor. So I had that for the summer and then I needed to make money. And uh, we were living right in Hollywood and up the road was a, a little boarding stable like sort of outfitter for like trail rides and my friend who I wrote comedy with at uh in Austin she was living there and she said oh you should go up there because they have horses and so we went up there and um I then they were looking for a manager like an office manager so I went up there and started working for them and uh as time went on I was teaching horseback riding lessons to just 
your average Joes or um, actors who needed it. Um, I would take like celebrities on rides and stuff and uh, uh, <laughs> do that, which was super weird and interesting. But uh, it was great. Because it's intimate. Like when I've done horseback riding, when I did like a trail ride, it was just me in California and the trail guide. Yeah. And it's an intimate thing to be on a horse with just, it's quiet except for the horses. Yeah. So like, was it like intimate? Did you talk to these people and get to know like how? Oh, sure. Yeah. No, it was, it was, yeah, it was interesting. And you kind of, uh, there was really nobody that I was, I mean, there were big, big name people, but nobody that I was like, oh my God, like I, that I couldn't handle talking to at that point. I think especially when you're the wrangler, you know, you've got a responsibility. And so they're, they're automatically sort of listening to you. <laughs> so you yeah. kind of have a leg up and it's not about them being famous. It's about them being mm-hmm. like, uh, please, Safe. I don't want to die. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Not many people I don't imagine are in the position of in that situation, training an actor, uh, trade a horse, be, having expertise in both their area and yours. Mm-hmm. Did that come up in conversation with, with the people that you were working with? And if it did, did it help oh, absolutely. you do your job? Absolutely. Because if you understand how to maintain your objective and under, and stay in your character and be confident on the horse, then you're doing a good job. If, if you're freaking out about the horse, you're never going to sell that you're whoever you're supposed to be on that horse. So yeah yeah it's a it's an acting i mean i come i'm kind of, i've never ridden a horse but i'm kind of hearing you say like everybody needs to do a certain amount of acting on a horse because you have to project a kind of confidence oh yeah and you can tell okay. i mean <laughs> oh my god you can tell when you're like oh that person should have taken some lessons before they plop them on that horse the amount of people hmm. that get on horses in movies that aren't well-trained enough and do stuff astounds me like astounds me but um because hmm. it's sounds dangerous. Very dangerous it's dangerous for everybody involved right the horse the mm-hmm. the the human the whole i i i just have this really uh, a lot of respect for you in terms of i mean for a lot of reasons but one of them is the horses when i have been on a horse the experience has been so intense and so um, tr- I had to trust. I've never had to trust anything mm-hmm. that was alive as much as I trusted being on that horse. Right. You know, in a plane, it's a story. Like a horse, I was like, "Oh, Tammy was her name," and I said, "Tammy, you, we, me, and you, we're gonna, we're gonna get through this." And she was amazing. But like, it's a, it's a, it's a real, and they're huge. Like you don't think, oh, a horse. You're like, it's a huge animal. And um, anyway, I, I think that that part is fascinating. Are you still doing? You have, you're in New Mexico. Do you have horses and do you train them? Do you? Oh. I do. Um, well, last October, we bought a horse property and moved to it. So I have five horses. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. It's, it's pretty great. It really, uh, I did it. I did it for myself, but I ultimately did it for my daughter because she wanted a horse and, uh, it was during that pandemic at the beginning and uh, I was just kind of watching her just slowly getting more and more enclosed. And I was like, no, this isn't. So when I found the property and we decided to do it, 
you know, now her window overlooks like our eight, our nine acres and the barn and she get, you know, she finished schoolwork yesterday and she just ran out there and rode two of her horses and spent the whole day down there. So that's yeah. fantastic. That's a very special thing yeah. you're providing was, for her. It's pretty satisfying. So getting back to the theater school. So you did, you did theater in undergrad, but how did that compare to DePaul and doing the MFA and having this very intense acting program? Um, it was not even close. You know, I, by the time I graduated, I didn't from undergrad, I didn't know what I was doing. I still, which is why I went to grad school. I was like, I can't go out there. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Cause I spread myself with the playwriting and then into the acting and I just felt like I hadn't experienced or had the amount of, uh, I, yeah, I just felt not prepared. And, um, there was, uh, a friend who Eli had gone to school with at DePaul, who was there at UNM for the graduate directing program. So he was like, you should audition for DePaul. And so I auditioned for three schools and, uh, DePaul was one of them. And then I got in and um, it was, yeah, it was a really big wake up call for someone who I hadn't had a lot of movement. You know, the most dance I had done was I did flamenco because I was at UNM and they had like the best program. So I was like, well, that's what I'm going to do. But it doesn't really prepare you for movement on stage in a very fluid way. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it helped. I'm sure it helped. Um, and uh, I hadn't had the link later. I hadn't had the, you know, the, just the training that I wound up with. Um, so it was, it was intense for me. Very intense. Uh, it was a lot. Was it intense for you emotionally or just in terms of like acquiring a new set of skills socially? What, it was intense, not socially, but emotionally and like, yeah, f physically acquiring all those skills and connecting all the dots and really just me with all my like guards up and all the, I really didn't know how to play. Honestly, yeah. I, I didn't grow up playing. I grew up working. And so playing, you know, when I worked at the comedy place in Austin, that was playful, but I didn't equate the two for some reason. Um, and so when I got to DePaul and, you know, Rick Murphy's asking me to play, I could improv because I had been in an improv group in undergrad and I had done all that stuff before I got there. In fact, the, the MF, the, the guy that was there for a master's program, he started this improv group. So he taught me everything Rick had taught him. Oh, so by the time I got to DePaul, I knew how to do everything Rick was teaching. Oh my God. So I had fun, but I was still, I guess the biggest thing was I was so aware of how much money it was costing oh, and how shit. in debt I was going that there was a side of me that was like, this better be good. Like this better work. And there was a lot of pressure <laughs> to like be and, and learn and, um, evolve into something that was going to pay off for me. And I think it kind of hampered my playfulness in some ways. Um, Interesting. I mean, I think that that is so, and you can talk about this too, because you're on sets now, but like this, it's, it's, 
the sense of play. I mean, I think that's maybe what I'm talking about, about the heart, the, the schism that exists between when we're, when we're told to be playful, especially like in a Rick Murphy kind of a way and really have a sense of, of, of joy about the work. But then there, there comes a transition where it's not play at all. It's like serious business. And I don't think I ever knew how to mix the two. And that's why my acting isn't good. Like, really, like, I don't know. I'm not, I'm just saying, like, I don't think I ever learned how to bring the joy back to set. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, uh, just funny. I that. I'm like, oh yeah, I never have fun on set. I'm always, I always feel like I'm going to die. So like, right. but I didn't feel like that in Murphy's class. I didn't feel that way in Murphy's class either. Um, I saw it all around me. And when, when I, when the third year, when we were mixed with the undergrads is when I really became aware because as a graduate student, you know, your acting professor could say something to you that was kind of shitty and you could say, oh, go fuck yourself. Like, cause you're like, you know, I'm 22 years old. Go fuck off. Uh, like right. I, it's a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, and they would be like, oh. And you would be like, well, no, seriously, go fuck off. Like, I don't need that. Right. It still hurt, but you didn't, uh, you didn't have that, you know, when you're an undergrad, what I noticed with undergrads was it was, it was really, it could be very intense. And what I really thought, what I really noticed in the undergrads was the difference between the, the experience the women were having and the experience the men were having. I really felt like the women were pitted against each other or they were, or just in general society, that's what was happening. And so there was so much competition between the women that it was agonizing to watch my friends, like, like just sobbing in bathrooms and like hating each other and not being supportive of one another and really like taking out their own insecurities on each other. And when I saw the the males that were an undergrad, they were just sort of like, hey, that's great. <laughs> I'm so glad you got that part. I wish I got it. Let's go have fun anyway. And it was just like, what are they giving them? <laughs> like, what's going on? Wow. And you had gone to a, an all-women's college, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you, I, you knew. I knew you what w- women yeah. were like. And it wasn't like that at the women's college that I was at, the liberal arts school. I mean, it was very supportive. And, you know, people do shitty stuff. But nothing where it was like you were trying to you were you weren't competing with the other person but i uh i witnessed a lot of that just as a upper you know a a a a graduate student watching the undergrads really just squabbling for parts and not that's quick like it's it's so interesting and also i'm just thinking of our interview with with john Hugenacker and Dave Dismalshin, mm. who were competing all the time and yet loved, managed to love the shit out of each other as they went through and their relationship only grew stronger and stronger. And then you turn and there's women that started out being friends and at the end of undergrad hated each other and never talked to each other again yeah. and still hate each other. Yeah. I, such a different, I never dawned on me, never dawned on me until you said that, that there could be that uh, disparity between discrepancy and, 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 uh, Mm-hmm. Oh, that's crazy. It was wow. a very different experience for women, I felt. And I don't know what it's like now, but uh but I it was it was hard to watch. 
was really hard to watch. Did you also think that that was true for the MFA program that, 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 no. Okay. Not in my experience. So then what did you, how, like, what did you do with that awareness at the time? Did you talk to anybody about it or were you just kind of like, ooh, don't touch that with the 10 football? I don't think I had the wherewithal to really recognize it. I just kind of saw it and steered clear of it. I mean, there were some graduate student friends of mine that did get into that mix where they would start to badmouth another actress or talk about how it wasn't fair or, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't stick my toe in it. There was a really nice moment, like toward the end, (laughs) very end of my time there when we were in scene study class with Mike Maggio. And, uh, I remember two of my friends were up there acting and it was sort of a train wreck. And he was like, let's just, can we all just sit down and talk? I don't know if you were in this class, Jen, but, um, uh, he goes, he gathered everybody around. He was like, you, you guys know that nobody's going to die, right? Like that this is just a play. This is not life and death. You can have fun up there and nobody's going to die. Are we, all, are we all in agreement with that? And I was like, thank you. Somebody finally said oh, it. Oh my God, what a relief. Yeah. And everybody was kind of, they were just staring at him like, what? <laughs> and I was like, inside my head just thinking god thank god he somebody finally said this to these people because which is so interesting because he was the one really closest to death in terms of his physical life exactly so he knew like look this is play like why aren't you enjoying yourself oh my gosh yeah you know yeah there was just such a i mean we've talked about this a lot on here there was just such a preciousness that 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 the i think i'm trying to unpack like why why was it like this and i think one part of it could be that um the art the undergrad professors really took themselves quite seriously and um talked about I think what they were trying to do was talk about the craft in a way that engendered you know a reverence from the students but it it wasn't articulated enough to say that you could step out of that at times so you didn't always have to carry the mantle of like mm-hmm. my craft you know and because and, I just remember taking everything quite seriously Sure. Yeah, I would. I would. Yeah, I I did at times, too. I mean, you know, my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, would find me like in my closet crying, listening to Tori Amos really loud, you know, like and he'd be like, are are you okay?" I was like, Like, you just had to have an emotional outlet. And um, did you feel supported like as a grad student or as a human um, that did you have a, like a, a circle of friends you felt supported there and like made good friends and like felt where I I'm like obsessed with this idea of feeling at home today. And like, did you feel at home amongst your people there? Uh, yeah, I did. I mean, I had a different experience in that I had this boyfriend. So I kind of had this life outside of the school, whereas other people were going to parties and they were hooking up and they were experimenting and, uh, I wasn't part of that social circle, but I felt supported by my friends. Um, So I didn't, you know, if they weren't supportive, I had no idea, but um, more often than not, I felt supported. You know, I, 
I remember after like our first intro, we were doing that David Hare play that I hate so much. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, I think it's Skylight. Ugh, that freaking thing. And um, I, uh, we finished like the second performance or something, and we were cleaning up the classroom. And Murphy walked up to me and he goes, "You, uh, you got that? You got that monologue finally?" And I was like, "Yeah." And he goes, "That second one though, still aren't there." And Tisha was standing next to me. And she goes, would you shut the fuck up? Leave her the fuck alone. What's wrong with you? And he was like, oh, oh, oh. And she was like, give her a fucking break. <laughs> that wow. is awesome. And I was like, yeah, give me a break. I'm working here. And he was like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> but. Oh, that's so that's great. So we did do that for each other. And we did like stick up for each other because we, you know, when you're at that point and you know, I don't know about the undergrads, but all the grad students were paying for their way. Like there was no doubt everybody was paying their way. So you kind of had, you felt valid in saying, you know what? I don't need that. I'm paying you. Here's the thing. like, We thought they were supposed to be our parents and you didn't. Right. Oh God. Yeah. They were, they were our equals to a certain degree we felt. And so when, when these conversations would come up, at least from my perspective, I don't know if other grad students felt this way, but you know, I had a couple of really good friends who were really talented who just left. They were like, no, no I'm not going to do this. And, you know, they have, they have a great life. I'm still in touch with them. And I think that you kind of have to want to be stripped down. You, you kind of have to want to have your ego dismantled to see what's underneath it. And, and I think that actors want that. Writers kind of want that to find out what's in there. And so I think there was something to what they were doing that was really beneficial. My big thing that I think all conservative, all conservatory training programs should have because of my experience in my third year there would be that you need to have some kind of, they teach you how to get into character. They teach you how to use things from your emotional life and pop, you know, so that you can just jump right in, but they don't teach you how to take it out there's no decompression like they don't put you through they don't have a technique and the tools for you to like release it so in my third play that from my my last year there I did all the last three shows I did at Victory Gardens right I I, one flea spare you is you were brilliant 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 well I went really I went from one flea spare right into I got the blues I didn't have a break And I started having panic attacks at dress rehearsal for I Got the Blues. That was my first panic attack was on stage, dress rehearsal, <gasps> I Got the Blues. Wow. And Hoganocker was sitting across from me and I was talking and then all of a sudden I just stopped talking. And I was very aware of the exit sign. I was yes. very aware of like where I was, except I thought, I feel so different. What's going on? Yes. And Hoganocker's just looking at me. And he said, said something else to me and he said something else to me. And all of a sudden I just started talking again and we we're back. But after that, I was like, I'm not doing this. I can't, I can't go on stage again. Um, so I had to manage panic attacks all through that run. And then. Uh, How did you do it? How did you do it? Did you get help? Um, Eli's uncle is a psychologist in Chicago. 
So he got me some Klonopin. Great. And I was able to do every single show. And every single night, Lisa Velton would have to push me on stage. Like she would stand right behind me and just push me. And then I would just go into auto drive. Complete auto drive. And it was. Holy Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know. I probably could have done a better job in that play, but I was definitely oh, on fuck. auto drive. You know, I was like, we did the play. Yeah, I did it. Kristen, I, 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 you know, I, I started having panic attacks in, at my fourth year in DePaul or oh. third year in DePaul too. And yeah. um, I can't imagine, and I wasn't in a show. It did like I was in yellow boat, but then, but it ended and I had a break from it. But you, the fact that you were able to continue, like now I look at, I watch performances since being having an anxiety disorder and performers in a different way, Mm -hmm. like being able to manage panic while being another character and remembering it is like, yeah, this is a a miracle. It's a miracle to me so that you got through it. I don't give a shit if you didn't, (laughs) I mean, that you were like fucking Meryl Streep. Who cares? Holy shit. Holy shit. I think that's uh, brilliant. And also afterwards you must've been, how did you feel? Were you like, what the fuck was that? Well, like, I still I gonna- had panic attacks, you know, all through, I mean, I was just taking Klonopin. I was, when we went to LA for the showcase, I had to manage it then, uh, that whole summer. And then I finally got therapy and the like 10th session with this therapist, we were going through my life, you know, then finally she said to me, tell me about the play before I got the blues. And that was one fleece bear. And I said, Oh, so I, she's just telling me the story. Tell me about it. And I started, I started from the beginning, but what I realized, I mean, by the end, I was just sobbing. I was a disaster. What I realized was I, I didn't know the difference in my brain between what Naomi had written and what I had created for my character. It was just a whole life that I created inside of myself and that had things that I'd created. So they were mine. And that play is a woman who's scarred from the neck down from a fire, from saving her horses and her husband who won't touch her and this little girl. And, you know, there's the plague. And in the end, the little girl helps her kill herself with a knife. And then they shroud me and the Matt who was playing my husband and we're dead. And then Dave who played the guard has this big monologue where he walks in front of us and he loved that monologue and it took a while. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Dave wasn't thinking about me like in a corset under a blanket, trying not to breathe, you know, he was performing. So that whole time I was just repressing, repressing, repressing all these emotions after killing myself on stage and then I would go off stage and just breathe and then go on with my day. So right. when I started rehearsals for I Got the Blues, it just stayed repressed. And then when I had my first panic attack, it was things like I didn't want to be near knives. I kept thinking yeah. about why do I keep thinking about killing myself? Yeah. Like there were all these things that I just hadn't added up with the fact that I had created a whole life. And I had done a good job from all my training like all that recall and, you know, being able to walk on stage and have this whole history and this moment that happened off stage, it worked. It all worked. It was all great technique, but again, nobody taught us how to 
decompress all that shit? How do you get all that out of you so that you can move on to the next character or on with your life without carrying it around with you? Right. Yeah. And this has come up a lot on the podcast. Um, And sometimes we've done this. I'll do it with you. Let's do a thought experiment about if we could have dictated the terms of that rehearsal process for you and somebody could teach you how to unpack, decompress, what would it look like? Would it look like somebody on staff? Like, would it be sort of like having an AD, but maybe somebody who's trained in mental health? I think someone who's either trained in trauma or mental health, because every, I mean, every great play has conflict. Every, every story is conflict. So there's going to be trauma. And how are you going to uh, find that within yourself? You're going to go to that place that has trauma in you to, to access that vulnerability, right? So if you have somebody on staff who's either trained in somatic movement, something that like you can like, then they take the actors from that play and they do two days of movement to release all this stuff out of their bodies. Since DePaula was all movement, like it was all about the physical actor. So how do you let it out of yourself physically when you've been taught to put it in physically? I think that would benefit actors tremendously. And if they're trained in trauma, in mental health, great too, but that they have to also be trained in some sort of physical outlet that helps you exercise that out. God, what if they had had something like uh, you know, Feldenkrais or Laban techniques. What if we were, what if we integrated the study of that more with like helping ourselves in a practical way after rehearsal? Because even if it's not some big traumatic story, even if it's a children's story, it, it takes a toll. But this is something that I think people who aren't actors can't maybe wrap their heads around. No matter what it is, having to put yourself in a reliably, you know, Mm, heightened place night after night or day after day as the case may be is emotionally exhausting Yes, for everybody no matter how much or how little trauma they have and and you're making me see like my panic attack started after I played a mother who lost her child to AIDS now I'm not saying that my real parents and my real childhood didn't, didn't start this whole process but like that's when they started. It's a trigger. After that, right around then, mm-hmm. and that intense experience with Avkali, who you know had his shit, and so it's just interesting. We never, and also the thing that we never talk about that the the um, movement part of it, the somatic part of it. I I I think you're right. I think it's not just about mental health. It's about the body releasing from the body all the stuff shit that is some deep shit do you do you um use that with actor like when you're on set as a director or as a right what like are you are you conscious of that on your sets like about actors health and stuff mental health and stuff like that oh yeah absolutely oh sure i mean i opened uh okay i just when i just shot a short that was a uh, horror and the actress is uh she's she's not as experienced as say we would have been coming from a conservatory, but she's been like taking lots of classes and stuff. And she's, I've watched her grow as an actress. And when I cast her, you know, I told her a couple of times, like I said, remember this is film. 
I don't, you don't have to feel anything in these spots. I don't, I just need the shot. If you feel it, that's fine. But I'm, you don't have to go to a really dark, dark place because technically I'm going to grab what it is I need just from the look in your eye. So just remember, I don't need you to go really deep in all these sections and horrify yourself. And then I said, you know, make sure that you write out everything on a piece of paper afterward and release it so you can let it go. And she took it very seriously. She was, she really did her work and she gave a great performance. Um, also I directed a, a play a couple years ago where it was two actors and they're on stage the whole time and it's very intense. And, uh, the male lead, he, uh, I mean, so confident, like just working his butt off opening night or the kind of gala night when the playwright had flown in and all these important people were there. Uh, the actress was like, Kristen, can, can you come in here? And I went into the theater and she's like, he, he said, he can't do it. He can't do it. He's freaking out. And I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> So I went, I talked to him and he was like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm freaking out. I'm panicking. I'm losing my shit. You know, he's like a 50 year old man. And he suddenly is having a panic attack. And I remembered I got the blues and I remember all those feelings. And I said to him, you know what? You don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. I said, you tell me, uh, I will tell them you have the flu. I will tell them you have diarrhea and vomit and there's no way we can do this tonight I was like that's fine you don't have to do it he was like are you sure I was like absolutely no you don't have to do it and I knew by saying that to him it would drop him drop his anxiety down tremendously because having someone sort of affirm that you're not crazy that there's nothing wrong with you that the end of the world is not going to happen if you don't do this play tonight and I told him that I was like what the fuck? Like I told him, I said, the, the playwright flew in and he had like a the gear landing thing that thought they were going to die. I was like, that's real. I was like, this isn't, it's okay. I was like, he can watch it tomorrow or he doesn't get to see it, whatever. And he totally was, he was fine. And he went on. So this ties in so beautifully to the thing we were talking about before we started talking to you today, which is about advocacy and whether or not we were asking each other whether or not we felt like we had advocates in our lives or whether we are advocates. And what I hear you saying both from, even if you weren't like getting involved in what was the theater school politics were, even just, I'm going to make the argument that even just the fact that you were holding space for that idea and kind of that it, that you having this idea that it shouldn't, didn't need to be that way for the women, no doubt had some, a lasting effect in the ether that is because the theater school is a very different place now in no small part because of all the people who were willing to say hmm I don't I don't quite think this is right but so you did that there and then you did that with your actors and I'm guessing you probably do that a lot with actors and it's like advocacy it it never I feel like there's this idea that if we are nice to actors that 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 we're not going to get a good product or there's some weird mythology about people needing to really suffer. And, and it doesn't actually work that way. That's some romantic idea that has never been true. Well, it's, it's a power thing. 
it's, you know, directors or acting teachers who enjoy the power. Maybe they're not even conscious of it, but it's like, you know, you've got a bunch of like Barbie dolls and you're just in control of them and you get to play with them. And I think that, um, that kind of power is intoxicating. When I was an acting teacher at Chicago college performing arts, I was keenly aware of the power I had and I was very uncomfortable with it. I didn't like it at all. Uh, I didn't, and I, but I learned from watching the undergrads at DePaul and watching the professors and how things were dealt with in certain ways. And just even my colleagues uh, at the, at Roosevelt, I, you know, the students would get mad at me because I wouldn't validate them. They'd be like, just tell me if I'm doing a good job. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that because what I've learned is someone else is going to think you're doing a shitty job. So I would say, just do your job. And enjoy doing your job. And if you're enjoying it and you're doing your work, that should be enough. I will give you direction. I will tell you where you need to look deeper. I will I will give you what you need, but I will at no point tell you that you're amazing. I also won't tell you that you're awful. And it was hard for them, but it but it kept me from uh, kind of drinking that Kool-Aid of like, I was, because they treated me, like you said, like parent, like, like I was suddenly their mom. And then the, the, the boys forget about it. You know, I was 30 years old. I was, they were like, oh my God, that's my teacher. And they were flirtatious. I mean, like beyond. And I was like, what the hell is going So I had to like, keep that at bay. I had to like, because you were the adult. And I was like, Oh, this is what's going on. These male professors don't get it. They think this is real. They think that girl really is in love with him. No, she's just desperately looking for the comfort of a parent, of a mentor, of validation, of safety, all those things. And he fell right, you know, they fall right into it thinking it's about them. And, you know, I just was like, I mean, I, it was dodging bullets left and right. And after three years of it, I was like, I can't, I can't do this. I don't like it. You know, unfortunately, because <laughs> you know, you want people who don't like it to actually do it that aren't going to get the power out of it. So showcase was a nightmare for you. You were dealing with panic attacks, but you moved to LA right after that. No, we stayed in Chicago after showcase because I went on to teach at Roosevelt and I acted in a lot of theater and uh, yeah, I just acted a lot. I didn't do any directing except at Roosevelt. I directed shows for, you know, work, um, which was great because then I really started to learn that I wanted to do that and how to do that. Um, and Mike Maggio was a very big influence for me. He was, uh, he really took me under his wing and we would meet and talk about like how, how you can, you know, we talk about like, how do you get, how do you create another Steppenwolf? Is it possible? Is it even, is it just sort of like, you know, lightning in a bottle? And we'd have these great conversations about what I needed to be doing and where I should head. And, um, he became a very close friend of mine and Eli's and, uh, so that was a very beneficial part of the theater school is sort of like taking that friendship and him very much saying, 
Like, you know, these are the possibilities. Did you, did you, in, in, in your showcase, were you like, I know you were dealing with panic and stuff like that, but did you enjoy your showcase? Was it a coming out for you? Did you feel at, okay. I kind of, I just didn't have an expectation. I, you know, when we did the showcase in Chicago, I got an agent. So Todd at Stewart signed me right then. And then when I got to LA, I just, uh, I, I realized very quickly, it wasn't the right monologue. I shouldn't have picked that monologue. Uh, I was on autopilot. I was just, blah, 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 you know, cause of the panic attacks. Uh, but again, it was, the experience was watching the undergrads sort of implode on themselves. And <laughs> I just was, it was so, it was so sad. You know, I had, I had undergrads crying to me about how they hadn't gotten an agent or they weren't getting the attention they wanted and without even considering I didn't get any either. Uh-huh. Right. They, right, just, right. they parentified you. I mean, they, they, yeah. And I was like, uh, what, what <laughs> did you think I just came here to chaperone you? <laughs> like, right. And I remember going to Jane's uh, hotel room and sitting down with her and I was like, Jane, what the fuck? And she was like, I know it's just, it's a shit show. And I was like, this is horrible. I was like, these kids are freaking out. They're turning on each other. They're friends. And she was like, I know. She goes, I can't control that. Like, that's just, like, that's just, that's just how it always is. And, and I was like, well, it's horrible. And I, <laughs> I want to go home. Like, this is awful. <laughs> so again, I have to say, I mean, no, no disrespect to, to the dead, but like, she could have done something. Oh, about she that. totally could have. She just didn't have the tools. You know, she's a casting director. What the hell was she doing teaching at a school without having an understanding of really what teaching was, you know, and that there are these people who, regardless of what she thinks they should be cast as, right? Right. Her, her consideration of their worth is right out the gate because that's her job. So right. how does she help somebody who she thinks isn't going to get anywhere? Yeah, right. It's a setup. It's, it's a, a setup, setup for failure on both sides. Right. Oh my god. I yeah, it's interesting. It's just the interesting to have your perspective as a, someone who was there as a grad student who was not did not participate and yet still had to go through and was dealing with all the things we were dealing with but has a slightly uh different and more uh wide lens yeah, I mean, I I obviously went through it on my own, uh, but you know the the all that. It, it was funny, but Jessica Hanna right now is staying in my guest house because she's directing no. my play, and uh, so she's been here for a month, and uh, we talk every morning and uh, discuss what went on in rehearsal. And one of the things we discussed was how the training that we did get is so good that there were all these things that they were missing for sure. And there were these, there were certain teachers obviously who abused their power. Um, it didn't happen to me because I didn't take them seriously, uh, which, which in the end, because I had to put that filter up of not taking them seriously so that I didn't get hurt. 
I could have gleaned more from them, you know, so you're doing all these things, but we did, as we talk about our experience and our training and what we would want from other actors who didn't have the training we had, (laughs) we're like, I was like, well, what, how about this? And she's like, yeah, I know. And you're like, oh, some people just don't have these tools. Like these tools that you can just grab and like run with and just play with. But my husband, Eli, is in the play as well. And I watched Eli immediately. Like he started a month before rehearsal, got off book, showed up at rehearsal, get the words, get the words out, make the connections. And then doing his work ahead of time so that then he could start incorporating gesture and start figuring out how he was going to use the space. Like he had it all mapped out. Whereas the other actors who are also equally talented weren't off book right away. They had way more lines because he was only in the second act, but you know, he's also running a multi-million dollar company right now. So it's not like he's like sitting around just memorizing lines. Like he's juggling, but he had the tools and he had the techniques to say, here's what I'm going to do to set myself up for success because I know how to do this. That is, that is so interesting that you say that. Cause I, I recently had the experience of like being super petrified before an audition, before I moved to LA and, and our, 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 um, classmate Beth Lakey said to me, don't you forget you're a conservatory trained actor. And I was like, at first I was like, I don't know what that means. I'm just freaking out. And now that I hear you say that, it's like, oh, right. There is a foundation there that we went through that is actually super helpful in doing the job as an actor. It's actually still there, even though it got covered up with some, you know, that there is a foundation there of skill that we learned. And, 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 and I can fall back on it if I allow myself to tap into it. Yeah. So I forget that. Yeah. You know? I, I honestly, you know, I didn't have experiences that a lot of people had, you know, I never had Avcali. I, I didn't have, you know, Ostelhoff. I didn't, I only had him for one semester. And so I heard stories of him, but I, I mean, you know, the the grad students in my class, we called Ostelhoff Gargamel. Like we, <laughs> we didn't like, we were just like, whatever, man. Like, you know. Yeah. You had some levity, levity, levity. Like these people aren't God. Yeah, they are, exactly. They are men and women who are, are just going about their lives. Yeah. And they're trying to teach something to and the pressure that they're under from the faculty, you know, also being, having been an acting teacher at a conservatory, like I saw, I actually directed a show at DePaul when, uh, when I started teaching at Roosevelt. So I was teaching at Roosevelt part-time and I was directing a show at DePaul, an intro. And uh, it was like night and day. I was like, oh, I would show up at this intro to rehearse and these kids were just, I, I mean, they were just terrified. They were, they were, they were crying. They were, they didn't feel like they were good enough. There was this constant angst and pain. And so I would go back to Roosevelt as a first time teacher there teaching freshman acting. 
And I was like, let's keep it, let's keep it light, you guys. Like, I really kept, and that's sort of where I got the idea of like, oh, I need to make sure that these kids take this seriously and that they realize this is what they want their job to be and they have to do the work. But I also have to make sure that they understand that when they're up there, they should be enjoying themselves and they should be playing with each other. And that I'm not, I mean, we didn't have a cut system. So there was not that heavy thing sitting over them. I was in the last grad program that had a cut system. I was in that last year where they were going to cut. And as a grad student, you're kind of like, fine, cut me. I don't owe so much money. Yeah, you're, right, right. You're like, get it over with so I'm not in debt. Um, but it was a, it was very eye-opening. And, and then going to a faculty meeting where I had to grade everybody with all my old acting teachers and listening to how they conversed and talked. And, you know, it was just, I think... Oh no. I think when you I would have a panic attack right there. I'd be like, oh my God, oh my God, nothing means anything. Oh my God, you know, like Well, yeah. I mean, there were a couple of comments that I was like, it's not appropriate. That's not what we're talking about here. And uh and I call them on it. I called them on it in the meeting and you know, make eye contact with Betsy Hamilton and her look at me with like an add a girl, you know, kind of a thing where you're you kind of are just blown away, but you you get what if 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 a certain culture lets you get away with something you you stop seeing that it's destructive you don't see that what you're doing is out of line and then amen and so you know it starts with the dean and i think that you know dean watts was it dean watts I, I thought he was yeah, a priest. Uh, yeah, I, I was a priest my whole life. I, I didn't even know. Yeah. That. I mean, Dean Watts was the one who, when I had my panic attack, it was dress rehearsal or Victory Gardens, and he's standing in the audience, and he talks to the entire cast, and then he says, just so you know, we spent a shit ton of money on getting the rights for this, so don't fuck it up. Oh, no. great. Oh, oh that's no. And I was like, oh my God. What? Well, what just I'll happened? Kill my, what I would say. Right? And you're like, I'm, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. About, I paid you to get those rights from my money. You know, it just was such a like, and that was the night that I had a panic attack. Of course. Mm -hmm. Of course it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, yeah, it was on. too much pressure. Wow. And then yeah, so so for people who are in theater school right now, graduate program or whatever, like find the moments where you can let yourself off the hook for you know the entire fate of the world resting on your shoulders or whether or not you do a really good job in this mm -hmm. part that frankly nobody's coming to see except the other people who go to your school. So honestly, like no Ben Brantley is not going to be writing it right. up in the Times. For you. So just just relax. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah, well, honestly, we did get reviewed for I Got the Blues. <laughs> oh, you did? Oh, seriously? Oh, I didn't. Hurt. They brought right. they brought it in okay. because they had paid so much and it was a world premiere. It had never oh. been seen before. And I was playing a part written for Believe. Stella Adler and the character was named right. Stella. She never got to play it. No pressure. So it was, no yeah, it was a, but I mean, again, it was a great cast, very talented people that I was working with. And thank God that they were there for me when I was having that, you know, between Velton and Hoganocker and uh, uh, oh, what's his name? He played my husband. 
Oh my God, I can't think of it. Who directed that? Hobart. Very Peter weird. Hobart. Oh, Hobart. Peter Hobart. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to end, unfortunately. No I want to honor your time, but thank you. This has been a fantastic conversation. Fantastic. I would love to, to keep going. I mean, like, we should have, have a part two, two someday. I really want to hear about you on set. And it also, I just want to say, like, as an actor, like, I, I now am questioning, maybe I just haven't found the right director. <laughs> well, you know, I always ask actors, but as an actor, I think you can always say to your director, listen, this is something that I deal with. So can you, actually my actress on, on the short film said that to me, she said, I have anxiety and I have had panic attacks. So if, uh, if you give me a direction and suddenly I start to feel anxious, can we have, can I always take a moment? I was like, absolutely. Of course you can. So I think you have to advocate for yourself as well. And also remember, remember, nobody's going to fire you for having anxiety because there would be no actors. Actors, actors have anxiety because they're empathic people and there's a lot on them and they're, they're constantly putting themselves in a vulnerable situation where, you know, everybody else that's involved, it's vulnerable, but not the same way. If you're in theater night after night, you're having to put yourself out there. If it's film, you're putting yourself out there. And then once you're done, they get to put together and edit whatever you put out there. So again, as actors, if you don't want it to be in the movie, don't do it. liked what you heard today please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends i survived theater school is an undeniable ink production jen bosworth ramirez and gina polici are the co-hosts this episode was produced edited and sound mixed by gina polici for more information about this podcast or other goings-on of undeniable ink please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com you can also follow us on facebook instagram and twitter thank you